everybody, and welcome to Comic Club, your friendly neighborhood comic book podcast. I'm your host, Blaine McGaffigan, and I'm joined, as always, by Adam, team captain of the Los Angeles Megaton team, Hook. Hey, Blaine, great to be here. We are streaming today live from the bitch So, Quick warning, we will be spoiling this month's comics. Proceed with caution. Adam, take it away. What did we read this month? This month, we read Bitch Planet by Kelly Sue DeConnick and Valentin DeLandro, which takes place in a dystopian future where non-compliant women are sent to an off-planet prison. We follow several, several prisoners learning their histories as they navigate through Bitch Planet and try to bring about a new order. Blaine, what did you think about Bitch Planet? Um... We got to talk about the feminism of it all. I mean, this this book is just loud and in your face, and I, I I dug that. You know, we talked about it last time on the episode. The covers just scream at you, and they're this uh, ex- exploitative sort of graphic design style. Are you are you strong enough to handle the bitch planet? And I think, you know, Kelly Sue DeConnick. There's, she does not hide from the fact, and she's very front and center with this is a response to, we're, we're going to get into her a little bit. She wrote Captain Marvel, and there was just a ton of blowback. The comics community has not the best standing with fans and female creators and female characters, and she wrote Captain Marvel, and they did a costume change on her where they covered up, you know, her ass that was always out and you know they put her in a different costume and you know she took a different way of the character and fans just had some crazy blowback it's sad and one of the things that she did is she's like oh you want to you're you're accusing this of captain carol danvers of being a you know angry woman i'll show you angry woman i'm i'm creating bitch planet and i think for that reason it kind of marries that like I said, exploitative genre with satire and just touches all these, you know, different aspects of feminism, which is really interesting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, that first issue is like, uh, we talked about it in Judging a Book by its cover, but it's got a woman just giving the double middle fingers to the world. And I think that's kind of uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick's position saying, all right, you think I'm a feminist? I'll show you a feminist, man. And it was just, yeah, it's a lot of fun. And um, you can tell that she actually has something to say and kind of works it into this this world that's heavily influenced by the exploitation genre. And I read a little bit, I, I'm sure we'll talk about this more, but I read a little bit about how she and... Um, her co-creator were watching a bunch of exploitation films and kind of a, a pretty troubled by a lot of what was yeah. happening in there. And so they wanted to kind of take their own spin on the genre and, um, you know, put it back in control of the women, really. That's right. She mentions sort of those women in prison genre movies. You know, she remembers them from her youth where she was like, oh, this is awesome. There's females as leads. And whenever she watched it as an adult, it's very overt in that this is created by men. All these women are super sexualized, you know, titillating. So it, it was uncomfortable in that regard. And I think, you know, some of those things like issue one is just the nudity in this is front and center. Again, not hiding from it. She mentions that she doesn't want to over-sexualize um, the women in this book because she she thought it was important to show their bodies sort of for who they are and not make it um, sexualized in that way, which I thought was 
you know, very smart. And I think the thing that I wanted to kind of talk about is really the world building of this. And I, whenever I first approached this book, I was trying to glam on to a character, trying to figure out, okay, what is this? What is the story here? What's, what's happening? And I think that reveals itself later, but this book is very much a satire. It is overt. It is in your face. It's not this ultra realistic handmaid's tale that is super dour. And like you said, there's, there's some fun in here to be had. The colors are bright. It's popping. And throughout the course of this book, there's not a ton of exposition. They're not like 50 years ago, this happened. You know, you kind of have to just piece it together through this world building and the way it, it unveils itself through the president, Eleanor and the Eleanorians and, and um, the main character who, you know, is there to find her sister. And just some of these pieces like that, they, they slowly reveal themselves as you understand the world. Right. And I thought that it was really interesting. Kind of the big story didn't really present itself until the second volume entirely, because what we read was essentially two trade collections, right? It was uh, 10 issues total. Yes. And um, in the first half, it's kind of one focus on this, this game, this, you know, gladiator type game that's in the world called Dumala and you're basically just focused on that and the prisoners um, forming this team. And then the second volume really pulls back the curtain on what is happening in this world. You find out more about this female president who has been imprisoned all these years. And like you said, there wasn't a lot of heavy exposition letting you know that this was all happening. You just have to piece it together. And I thought that made for a much more satisfying experience not being spoon fed, this kind of just okay. Here's what you need to know. It, it you just have to discover it yourself. And there were times where I would read something, then I'd have to flip back a couple pages, and I'd say, "Oh, okay, now this is what that's talking about." Yeah, it's really the sign of confidence in a creator whenever they also whenever the creator has confidence in their audience, and they said our readers are smart. They're going to pick this stuff up on their own. You know, it doesn't open with a five pages of saying 50 years ago, you know, Eleanor was removed from power for almost doing this. It, it doesn't do all this, this work. It just puts you there and you have to, again, pick up the pieces on your own. I thought that was really smart and it allows you to kind of latch on to these characters and who they are in a different way because they don't say who they are. They You have to see it through their actions. And uh, I think that was, you know, I, I for me, Cam is the standout here because she is kind of one of the, the main leads that you follow through this. And underst- I didn't understand what her, her sort of role is in all this until much later. And you slowly start to unravel who she is as a character. Yeah, so Cam, I don't know if we want to just dive into her story. Yeah. But um, she's basically, we we find out later on that she's there because she's looking for her sister, who's a trans woman. They keep saying, you have a brother, don't you? And she says, I don't have a brother, I have a sister. And um, her sister's been prisoned here for, you know, we find out probably for being a trans woman. Right. And um, anything that goes against kind of the typical white male view of the world is deemed non-compliant. And so that's where this whole compliance things, and then they get sent to an off-world prison. 
Yeah, I have a list of these because they're some of them are kind of funny uh, the way they list them. Like uh, the ones here are non-compliance reasons you would be sent to Vidge Planet. Right, because when they show a prisoner, they'll like have a little stamp that's like, oh, prisoner's name, so-and-so, reason for imprisonment. Yeah, a couple of these patrilineal dishonor. Seduction and disappointment, which I love. It's just like, <laughs> I got denied. Send her to the planet. Um, uh, emotional manipulation. That's another one like that. Disrespect and bad mother. I mean, these are just so unclear. They're not actual like laws. They're just, if ever a man feels like they're disrespected or, it, it, again, a woman is not compliant, he just sends them off. Yeah, and that's what, you know, like you said, it's really confident storytelling, and that's what they spend the whole first issue setting up, really, is because you're following this one woman who's just been sent to the prison to Bitch Planet, and she's trying to tell them she doesn't deserve to be there, and there's another man who's back on the regular planet on Earth or wherever they are, and he's, you know, pleading with this government official to get his wife out of this, you know, imprisonment and you think that he's talking about her the whole time but really he's talking about his new wife that he had an affair with and when his now imprisoned ex-wife went against it she was sent to prison and so you just realize all right whatever the men want is going to happen in this world and uh, the women are kind of at their mercy that's right Let's take it over to Best Lines. Uh, this is the section of the show where we showcase the written word and highlight our favorite moments of dialogue and more. Uh, we're going to use this as a moment to kind of talk about the different aspects of the world. Adam, you're up. What is some of your best lines? I'll kick it off with a line from issue two. And this is when Cam, who's pretty much our protagonist of the story, she's being interrogated by an officer, Officer Whitney. And Officer Whitney... Um, is trying to convince her to form this team, uh, this sports team for this game called Dumala, which is like the most popular game in the world. Anyways, so Whitney says, the ancient Greeks believed athletic prowess an indicator of moral authority. And Cam says, they also believed their gods lived on a mountain and that trouble was caused by little men with horse sticks and pan flutes. Don't make it clever just because it's old. I thought that was hilarious. That's a classic showcase of cam sort of just spitting in the face of authority um she is you know fiercely independent and speaks her mind to the point to where she is basically picking fights with people all the time and this there's a lot of heavy themes in this story but there's also a lot of fun and moments like this i think are where you get the fun side the kind of it reminded me of the you know kind of dialogue you might find in a Tarantino movie or just something that is just a classic one-liner that just sounds like it'd be fun to say. Yeah, and, and it reveals so much, I think, about the world, which is it's so easy for men to kind of explain themselves. Well, this is how it always is. This is how our history is. is. This is how they did in Roman times. This is how they did it. it. It's a common excuse people always use is, well, this is how it is. And then she gives back the the classic line of, well, they also believe these other psychotic elements. And they that line in particular is a comedy. But um, I, I think that, I mean, that same conversation plays out all the time. It plays out all the time. I mean, that works in our modern lives. It's a great line. All right, my first best line is this part, you know, and there's there's a couple of them in this. I, I mentioned sort of the nudity aspect of Bitch Planet 
where she didn't want to make it ultra sexualized just when they're living their lives, just when they're taking their showers and stuff like this. But there are moments of sexualization in this. This one in particular is where uh, Miko is having a sexual encounter and this this page is absolutely beautiful. It has these violins with music notes, the tablature, and you, you see her body compared to a violin here. And there's this uh, exposition dialogue over top and it says, Again, carrying the, uh, comparing the woman's body to a violin. The bridge holds the strings and transfers vibrations to the belly where they pass through the soul post. The soul supports the structure. It keeps the body from collapsing under the pressure created by the tension of the wires on the bridge, the heartstrings. And it was just a really sort of moment where you're kind of in Miko's head and you get to see this you know, juxtaposition between how she views her femininity and then how she's viewing the sexual encounter she has, which is, you know, more along the ugly and horrifying side. So it was just kind of like a tender moment with beautiful sort of line work and wordplay that I thought worked really well. Yeah, it's, it is a really, really pretty moment that's also just slammed against this horrifying event. Um, really, it really kind of grabs you as a, a reader in that moment. That's right. That's great. I love that one. My next one is from issue six. So it's actually at the end of this issue and also has Miko. This is after she's just killed the guy. She says, lean in. Can you hear it? It's faint, but it's there. It's the sound of the world's tiniest violin. And it's the only song I'll ever play for you. This one, again, I felt like it was a classic kind of one liner that, um, I could hear in a movie and I had a lot of fun and it gives you this moment of satisfaction where that's a really tough issue to read. And it's a, a, a gruesome story that they're portraying. And then at the end, Miko has a moment of triumph and it's so satisfying when it comes and just a really nice payoff. And in the story, they're using these panels of close up of her hands, kind of doing that world's tiniest violin motion, rubbing right. the fingers with the thumb. And at first you don't really know why she's doing that, but then it gets to the end of the quote and it really pays off in a nice kind of neat little package. Yeah. That, that exact page echoes the page that I just mentioned. It has also the notes in the background and kind of some of those same visuals. And it's the, the counter to that. So it's like, here's it happening to her. And then here's her uh, divvying what happens to the man. Right. Because so those go. are probably the first, kind of the first and last pages of that yeah. issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So a nice little bookmark there. Okay. My next one is whenever they're really describing, and, and like Adam said, the first half of this story really covers uh, Dumala, otherwise known as Megaton, and uh, man's, you know, the fathers, as they call them, have created these two TV personalities, Haley and Kaylee. And they're like these, uh, you know, classic, they're, they're all in pink, they're AI, so they look like they're like almost projections um, to a degree. And they're just over-sexualized. They look like cheerleaders, you know, their tits are out, their, you know, stomachs are open, they're ultra skinny. And here they are just describing Megaton and why you should be interested in it. Whether you're watching, playing, talking about, or in properly licensed venues, betting on the game, men are obsessed with the sport that is two tons of fun. Single ladies, 
Just imagine the gleam in his eye when you fool him into thinking you share his passion. Married ladies, men who talk megaton do better in the office. You'll reignite that spark and help him succeed. And, um, you know, I was talking about world building before. And you can just imagine how wide you can go with this story. You know, DeConnick and Delandro has created this sort of satirical universe where you can comment on so much. Here they're commenting on sports culture, the way men and women both approach, you know, football, baseball, sports in our in our world. And this is just kind of one of those, uh, you know, another weird satirical slant and take on it. Yeah, they set it up so well that you could see this world just going in a lot of different directions and following different types of characters. And so much so that, like we said, we read the first two trade issues. There's actually a third issue that's a collection of stories that are done by totally different artists and writers, and they just exist in the world of Bitch Planet, but they don't even follow any of the characters. They have nothing to do with the plot of the first two trades. And so that's a true testament to how well this world is established. Through 10 issues, it was such a clear-cut vision that other people could come in and it still feels like it's, okay, this is in the same world. This is you know from the same voice. And um, they did that all in that short time. So killer world building. My last line is in issue seven, this is after Miko has uh, died tragically in the game and Penny is just overcome with guilt and she's sitting in the showers um, and Cam comes up to console her and Cam says, we're strong, right? You and I, we spend our whole lives being strong. And then one day you realize you ain't, str- one day you realize strong ain't strong enough. And I think that was a really nice moment of vulnerability that Cam shows when so much of the story, she's trying to be the tough one. She's trying to be the leader that's in control, keeping her emotions in check, but she exposes herself to Penny here and lets her know that they all feel pain and um, she feels her pain. She actually takes Penny by the hand and they have a nice moment together. And that's one of, I think one of the sweetest moments in the story. Yeah, and it's it's those dynamics. You know, I mentioned that about DeConnick saying, you want to see, you know, an angry woman, then then I'll give it to you. But that isn't a real character. You know, that's a caricature that was thrown in her face and she was using it. But here you can see, no, these are real people. You know, she talks about, I was reading in some interviews of her approach to writing black women in a lot of ways because she is a you know white creator and she approached it with a little bit of apprehension and then she realized no i they're, they're humans i have to tell these stories and um you know the reality of the situation is is black women are incarcerated more so it's very important to tell their story at the same time so um that is a very humanizing moment in the story that i thought was very touching yeah what do you got for your last My last line? last best line is the Penny episode. So there's this, you know, this kind of insert. I believe it's issue three. And I think one of the original intentions was, was they were going to do these issues where it shows how the different women in prison got 
put there. And we get to see some of Penny's story. And then here they're talking about her treatment. And she's put in front of all the fathers. It is just, she is, you know, on display here. They're going to read her her brain. And they're trying to, you know, rationalize it in their head. She says, what, you're going to read my thoughts? And they're like, no, 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 no. We're just going to show you how we can best treat you. And the line I have here is one of the fathers explaining to her. And then we'll compare your ideal self to your actual self. And this will give us a road map for your treatment. How long since you imagined what your life could be like if you were more compliant, Penelope? How long since you prioritized how others see you? And that scene just really, and that line just really shows the way the fathers, you know, in this case, the patriarchy is kind of talking at women, mansplaining to them, you know, really saying that your thoughts, your views, your person is in service of us, of society, and how long since you prioritize that. And it's this weird kind of passive-aggressive guilt thing that is, you know, done in real life. And I just thought it was a really notable moment. Yeah, trying to turn the tables to make it about her when it's really about everyone else's, you know, vision of perfection or what a woman should look like. And yeah, Penny has a great arc. She's a very interesting character. Mm-hmm. And, and that's followed up with, I, so what that is, is they're, they're going to display this mirror of how she wants to view herself. And the idea that they thought is that she was going to view herself as this skinny, you know, compliant woman. And, you know, her actual self is, is better or more along their lines of better. But whenever it's revealed, it's just her same exact body and they're shocked. And that reveal was just awesome at the end of that issue as well. All right, we are going to move into the best at what they do. This is the segment where we chat about the creators themselves. We cover how they got started in comics comics, and highlight some of their notable work. First up, we have Kelly Sue DeConnick. Doing some research here, it says she was introduced to the comics industry by writing copy for photos in adult magazines. So I thought that was kind of interesting. You know, she has kind of a interesting background where, she, you know, she was exposed to you know, naked women all the time, whether it was, you know, the comics and Playboy or whatever it was. I didn't get into the details there. Uh, another thing I have here, she was an active member on some um, forum, specifically Warren Ellis's forum, where, uh, you know, I think, she, believe she met her now husband, Matt Fraction, and some others, Chip Zdarsky. There's this kind of current lineup of creators that came up through this forums and talking and, and sharing their work. I just wanted to call that out there. Later in life, she got a d- job translating Japanese manga comics for Tokyo Pop and Viz. She also did some Korean comics, and she estimates she wrote more than 11,000 comic book pages doing translations. And it's kind of this... She kind of cites it almost as like a 10,000 hours rule, if you know the Malcolm Gladwell thing of like, I've been writing dialogue for this long, so that by the time it was time to write my own dialogue, I had a handle on it, and I've been doing it so much. So it's just kind of one of those things there. Um, Her bibliography, like I mentioned, she is very famous for creating Captain Marvel. She wrote it from 2012 to 2015. Um, Some nasty backlash. I mean, comic fans... There's a, there's an underbelly of comic fandom that is, you know, uh, not pleasant and something we do not support here at Comic Club. So that led her to then go on to create Bitch Planet. Another famous creator-owned work she did is Pretty Deadly, this 
um, Western comic with creator Emma Rios. And I've read that and it is beautiful. Like the art in that is nuts. So that's one we talked about maybe doing in the future. Currently, she uh, has most recently done Aquaman for DC. And a quick other note, she served as a consultant on the film Captain Marvel. The film appearance of Captain Marvel borrowed a lot from her run. So there you go. Next up, we have Valentine Delandro. He started as an art assistant for Dark Horse Comics. Some of his notable work includes X-Factor and Marvel Knights over at Marvel. And currently, he is working on Mr. Miracle Shiloh Norman redesign at DC for the Infinite Frontier. A couple other creators here. I have Robert Wilson IV, who did that Penny issue, number three. And I have Ryan Hughes, who did the logo, original cover design, and book design. Because this this thing just looks so pretty. I really wanted to call out Ryan Hughes because we talked about it last week when we talked about judging a book by its cover, but these covers are nuts. And I think some of that was Ryan Hughes, some of that was uh, Delandro himself. But the design of this from the intro to the back matter is dope. And that brings us to Lauren McCubbin, who did the, the back matter, those pages um, that are really kind of, you know, this feminist take where we might get into those, but it's just really interesting thing. So that brings us to one of our favorite segments, the Art Awards. It's a segment where we hand out awards to specific visual moments in the book. It can be a single panel. It can be the coloring. It can be the lettering. Sometimes it can be a whole scene. Adam, what do you have first? All right. So my first art award, um, this one comes from issue number four and this is going to get my award for the pages i most want as a poster and this is a two-page spread showing us the game of dumala and it looks like an awesome poster you'd have on your wall you got a dumala player who's handling a ball kind of in motion almost like a heisman pose um you see a picture of the field some some players celebrating uh there's like a fight you know, sequence at the bottom and some of the rules are mixed in and it's just this awesome designed poster that, I mean, I'd put it on my wall right now. Yeah. We talked about some of the design work of this, but that's exactly what it is. It's like this data page where it's all of a sudden you're reading the rules of a game. It's kind of like this Wes Anderson thing where it's like he, he takes a little slice of, you know, inside the world to show you uh, something there. And I, I love that. That I thought that was awesome. Yeah, that is a fun moment. Good call on the Wes Anderson comparison. Yeah. All right. My first is called the Torture Chamber Award, and it's when Cam is put in this room where they have this over-sexualized, you know, the girl who runs the bitch plan is this sort of nun. Sometimes she's a sexy nurse. She's just like, she is the most sort of exploitation genre kind of character, this like really like busty uh, creation of of men again it's this ai and she's in this room that is just wall-to-wall tvs and that ai is berating her um a cam who's just standing there looking at all the images around her and it's a you know full page there and all the images are this this woman's life who she, she they claim that she killed and it's just really really designed nice the colors are popping and it's um that really sci-fi um aspect that's, uh, that i love i love that man i love that yeah she was like that's like a creepy just immersive world that you could tell would just overwhelm their their prisoners Bend yeah, them there, to their will. Yeah, there were sometimes it was like 
I think back on earth, it was like, man, this is like very normal. And then there are sometimes they would like show the streets and the cities and it's like, oh, this is like really sci-fi looking. And then sometimes you just get these glimpses of, you know, marrying, you know, our reality with this sci-fi element that that was really smart. Yeah. Uh, it's a nice um, balance because it's not, you know, not too much. You could see how it's just a progression of our world, right? Yeah, exactly. All right. My next award it comes from issue number eight, and um, this is kind of when there's some multiple actions going on, and it's a page that's split up into 18 panels. One page, 18 panels, showing you all these different types of action. Um, one of them has one of these operators who's kind of a security guy who's just sort of picking with something in his tooth while he watches the security camera. Then you got the security camera and it's showing you a fight going on. And at the bottom there's, um, Mr. Makoto. Is that his name? Yeah. Um, Mr. Makoto is about to do something that seems important. And I'm giving this the, the best 18 panel grid award because I just thought it was really interesting how the style was so fluid kind of depending on what they were trying to do within the story. You'd get 18-panel grids. You'd get huge two-page splashes, you know, playing with the form all over the place. And I was just really impressed. And it keeps you in the story in this really natural way where you're just kind of in it and it makes sense. It's like very very intuitive storytelling almost. Yeah, and I I think each each issue opens with, you know, one of these high panel, it's like 16 panels or 12 panel openings. Every issue starts with sort of a, a similar thing, but like you mentioned, playing with the form. And that'll lead me into my next award. I call it Tommy Peepers Bait Award. And uh, I love the name Tommy Peepers. I, I, I don't know, I just thought that was great. But it's the scene where I mentioned where DeConnick didn't want to over-sexualize the characters when they're just living their normal lives and just doing normal things. But here... It shows Cam using her sexuality very, very blatantly, and she's using it um, to gain power in the situation. So Tommy Peepers is the guy who looks through the little peephole at the women while they're in the shower, which is the only place that they're free to discuss, talk, um, have gay relationships, etc., without being punished because there's no cams or microphones in there. And here she is. She goes into the shower, and you see her naked, and there's these overlays of just close-ups of her lips and her body and her tits and these different pieces and she's really leaning into it and then you see tommy peepers eye poking through the hole and she says gotcha and it's followed up with just her just taking him down and i just love that because it's using her body and her sex to gain the power here and i i think there was that was a really important moment in the story I also think it's turning a little lens on the audience, too, because I think that gotcha is meant a little bit for the reader because you're pulled into this moment where you're thinking, oh, my God, are they just putting this gratuitous sex scene in there for no reason? And then it's like a direct address right to the camera where she says gotcha. And that was the moment where I was like, oh, that's right. Uh, This is a (laughs) feminist story. That is a good call out. That is a really good call out there. All right, my last art award, and this one is could go to so many of them. I just wanted to give a an award to best back matter because at the end of these issues, you get kind of the old school back matter page where there's 
advertisements, there's kind of write-in columns, misconnection stuff, and um, it's really fun, and it really builds the world out, too. If you actually read all this stuff, you get such a better sense of what's happening in the world. Yes. But it is so tongue-in-cheek that I just had such a good time with it. One of them says at the top, hey, kids, patriarchy, in exclamation, just having fun, taking down women, and um, one of them was like, your vagina stinks and it's an advertisement for a douche and just these kind of really hilarious um, pages that were just a joy to read. Yeah. It's that satire and that overt satire that um, really slams the point home and really makes it very clear and, and comedy. I I love those scenes. Like, and and I read every one of them, like, like it it really gets detailed. You have to like, sometimes there's like post-it notes and there's, you know, different little things in the world. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. It's kind of like a nice palate cleanser at the end of every issue. Yeah. Something we missed a little bit whenever I was doing my research is there was a really, um, big letters column in this and it became a big part of the book and women would, you know, send fan, uh, images where they're cosplaying as the non-compliant women. Many, many people got tattoos and they would write in. It was called Bitch Fest. And I was reading a little bit about it. And some of these image creator-owned books, they develop these sort of communities on their own through the letter columns where the fans of the series really take ownership and really buy into the world. And that's something that wasn't in the trade paperbacks, but I wanted to call that out as well. I know that this one has a really deep fandom. Um, we talked about how, you know, in the in the world, the prisoners are are branded as non-compliant if right. they're sent to Bitch Planet, and that's taken off as a tattoo. And tons of people have this non-compliant symbol tattooed on themselves as like, you know, sign of protest, little punk rock nod to Bitch Planet. Yeah, I love that. That's badass. All right, my last one is, and I'll always do it. I, I love you. Give the award after you describe the panel. I always give it first. You know, we, we each have our own style. Oh, yeah, that's it's nice. Mine is Playing With Structure Award. You know I love it. You know I'm going to call it out every time. It is the scene when Makoto is having this kind of moment where he's struggling and he keeps thinking these thoughts. You see him just in his head. And he's like, you shit the bed. You did this on purpose. You've made mistakes. You've done this. You're shit. And, you know, he's just dealing with this sort of self. He's berating himself. And then he... You see the next one and it's popping up and he's just swatting it away in the air. So you get this thought bubble and he's just swatting the thought bubble away. And it's just one of these things that, again, you can only do this in comics. They're using the medium and messing with it in a really artistic way. And I love that. That's just the fun of comics. Is It's it's a joy to see the creators take advantage of that and not just do it so cut and dry as just telling the story. Really using the medium like we talk about. Yeah, I I think, you know, that's what I love so much about comics is it, and I think about it sometimes whenever I introduce new readers to comics and they, they're a little confused. Like, how do I read this? What, like, like, do I read this first? Where do I start? Do I, these are bubbles, they're talking. And it's like, it's, it's so funny because we take it for granted because we've been reading comics for so long, but it truly is its own medium. And I love just how you can play with it. And that is just, artists always need to lean into that a little bit. And listeners, if you're wondering how to read comics, if you've just been, you know, listening to us this whole time without picking up a book, God bless you, first of all. But you just get in there. You just dive in, you know, just start reading. Sometimes you'll read out of order. You go back, you read it in the right order. It doesn't even matter. All right. 
we have to stop on that point because you are a hundred percent right. I think there is this, we live kind of in this completionist society, or I don't even know if that's an accurate description, but it's because everything is on demand now with streaming, especially TV. Comics is serialized the same way TV is serialized. So a lot of times in old TV, whenever it just came on at a certain time, you had to have it on. And if you started watching Seinfeld in the middle of season three, you couldn't really go back and watch seasons one and two because it was just aired. It was syndicated on its own. You had no option. Now, the consumer is always in power. We have access to all this and everybody wants to start from the very beginning. I want to watch every single episode. I want to watch every single season before I get to the new season. I got to get caught up. Well, listen, comics have been going back They started in like the 40s. You can't go back on a lot of this stuff. And like Adam said, jump in there. Find something that interests you and just dive in headfirst. You'll figure it out and you'll find out what you love. So so killer point, Adam. Dive in, baby. All right. That's going to take us over to Adaptation Alley. Stroll down the alley where we talk about if there is already an adaptation. In this case, there isn't. So what would one look like? How would it best be done? Adam, what do you got? Well, it's interesting because they have they actually have a deal for an, uh, an adaptation in place. Uh, Kelly Sue DeConnick and her husband, Matt Fraction, had signed a deal with a production company. I think it might be New Line. And um, it was kind of to adapt a lot of their works. And nothing has come concretely yet, but we could see one eventually. And to me... This thing is structured perfectly for television. The kind of dueling um, timelines is just tailor-made for a TV show. If you watched Lost, it kind of could be a similar structure to where you have, okay, consider it maybe the present timeline where it's everyone in the prison, and then you get the past timelines of each prisoner and what they were doing to get them to the prison and what was happening you know, in the world before we met them all in the prison together. And so you can really kind of parcel out this story in a natural way and break it up, you know, like television does um, and keep it going, keep it interested. A lot of shows have done this really effectively. The first couple of seasons of Arrow did it. And um, I think it's just a great storytelling, you know, uh, technique. And there have been a lot of comparisons to other shows that exist Orange is the New Black is a very kind of natural comparison. It takes place in a prison, deals with some of the exploitation genre stuff, and I think it's similarly structured to where you're kind of finding out the backstory of each character little by little as you, you know, collide with the present story. And um, I just think that could be a jumping off point, and you could say, okay, this is going to be Orange is the New Black, but set in space in, you know, 150 years from now, and someone would say, yeah. I'll pay for you to make that movie or that show. Yeah, I I agree. I think this, to your point, would have to live on television. This is not going to be a movie because it is an expanding world, to your point. And the other thing I want to say is there's an appetite for this. Orange is the New Black was mega popular. Handmaid's Tale, which has similar feminism themes, is mega popular. And I think with this, you know, it's sci-fi, but it doesn't 
really have that mega budget. It doesn't always show these crazy cityscapes where you would need CGI all the time. It's at the end of the day set in prison and set in boardrooms, you know? So I think you could actually completely make it work on a TV budget and just expanding this world, like you said, between past and present makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would love to see it. I think it could really work. Um, Call me if you need any ideas. Hollywood, (laughs) I'm here. But before we... well. Before we wrap it up, I just wanted to, I want to make sure that we talk about where this ends because they didn't finish the story. It ends on kind of a huge cliffhanger. This is like the end of the original run of Twin Peaks where you just go, what? Wait, what? That just happened and now it's over? Right. And this last was published, you know, years ago, two or three years ago, and we haven't, um, haven't seen any continuation from the story. I've heard some rumblings through Twitter that they might be working on the next stage in it. But as of now, we haven't seen anything yet. And, you know, tell us a little bit about that ending, Blaine, and what do you want to see happen with it? Yeah, this ends whenever they're unveiling, I believe they're christening a megaton field. And um, as they're there, you know, one of the main daughters of the father is kind of – he keeps asking her, you know, what are you doing? What's going on? Are you ready for your thing? And it's revealed, I, I think she's a newer character, and it's revealed that she is an Eleanorian. And we kind of get this um, piece of who the Eleanorians are and what happens. And there's this sort of radical movement of women who are fighting against the patriarchy. And they have these sick designs where they like paint their face and it's like they're taking over the stadium. And all of a sudden it turns into like... Uh, one of those Mockingjay movies, you know, where it's just like they're fighting against, you know, the the man in the system. And that's what's happening sort of in the real world. On the other side of things, um, Makoto, who finds out that his daughter got killed in the scrimmage of the Megaton team, because they, again, they're forming the Bitch Planet Megaton team, he completely snaps. And he was always a little on the fence about the whole Bitch Planet to begin with. And he opens up all the the prison cells and it's this classic prison riot scene where um, all the prisoners are escaping and all the guards kind of get taken over and captured. And that's whenever you learn that Eleanor, who was presumed dead, is actually alive and it's like she's going to lead the resistance. And I think there's a good little um, dichotomy here where Cam has a very specific mission to free her sister. She has mentioned that she doesn't want to be a part of the movement. She is not a radical warrior, but she is one of these natural leaders. And I think there is a story to play out, which is, you know, classic in film and television and and books is, you know, one of these unlikely heroes where they're powerful and they're a natural leader. They may not initially believe in the, the movement and they have their own sort of reasons for doing the things they want to do, but then they learn that they need to serve the larger good. And you could see this arc in her story where she learned that, no, she does need to become the leader of this movement and fight against it all. There's so much potential there. They've built it so well to this point that they got to keep going with this. Kelly, if you're listening to this, Kelly Sue, uh, please keep making this. I would love to see where you take the story next. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's the awesome thing about Image Comics. It's these creator-owned, and you're kind of in control of your own 
destiny there. And it looks like they've taken a, a little bit of a break to do other things. I mean, I mentioned Pretty Deadly before. Pretty Deadly had two volumes, I believe, in 2016 or 17. And they're now just doing another volume. So, you know, don't rule this out. I could see this being announced, you know, in the near future. So who knows? Absolutely. Can't wait for that day to come. And that's going to be it for today's episode of Comic Club Podcast. You can follow us at Comic Club Podcast across the internet. I am Blaine McGaff on Twitter. I am Danger Adam on Instagram. Yeah, like us and leave a review. Tell a friend about the show. And that's going to wrap it up for this month's Comic Club. Adam? Comic Club out. Comic Club is brought to you from Upper Esh Media. This episode was edited by Adam J. Cook. Our intro and outro music is by Tiger Cup. Katie Livingston at Living Kate designed our logo. If you enjoyed the episode, tell a friend, follow us on social at Comic Club Podcast, and join our Facebook group to continue the conversation online. Remember, everyone, read more comics. Comic Club.